0: You're listening to Meaningless, a year-long series of sermons from the book of Ecclesiastes from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. Ecclesiastes is an honest look at where we as people seek to find our meaning, money, work, pleasure, success, even religion. The book unmasks them as meaningless, not because they aren't good things, but because they weren't intended to be ultimate things. We were made for God. When we return to Him through the reconciling life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all of those things are filled with the meaning only He can give.
1: The rest of you all, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible with you, you could find the text printed in your order of worship. Or, if you don't own a Bible, we've got a few on the back table. Just go grab one of those. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. There we go. That's better. All right. While you're doing that, turn into Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're in the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9 this morning. Let me remind us what we're doing, okay? Over the last several months, we've looked through the book of Ecclesiastes with an eye towards how we take things, all of us, humans, not Christians, but humans, uh, which means this applies to all of us, we we take things like wisdom and pleasure and work and justice, relationships, success, religion, money, uh, even morality, and we place our hopes in them. We do that because we think they're going to make things right for us. They can finally fix what we know is kind of wrong. And and over and over again, our, the writer of this book, of Ecclesiastes, has shown us that they can't deliver on their promises. And so this week, what we're turning to is our desire for certainty. Many of us, if not all of us, want desperately to have certainty, don't we? Economic certainty, political certainty, certainty in raising kids. If you're a parent this morning, wouldn't you love to know everything's going to turn out fine? Like, uh, we want vocational certainty. Many of us just want theological certainty. And all of these things can become things we pursue. But why? Why do we do that and to what end? These are the questions we're taking to the Scriptures this morning. So if you have your place in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 8, would you stand in honor of God's Word as we, as we stand under the preaching of the Gospel? Let's hear this from chapter 8, verse 16, uh, through chapter 9, verse 6. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot comprehend the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not comprehend it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot comprehend it. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. For it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. And also the hearts of the children of men are are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is gone. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. This is God's word, even surprisingly at times, given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord, no, no one in this room needs to hear from me this morning. They need to hear from you. And so we ask that by your Spirit, you would open our hearts to the preaching of your gospel and that you, O oh God, would preach it. You would use fallen words to accomplish your purposes. You would let Christ and his cross come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall to the wayside because, Lord, you are the one who is the Savior of our souls. And so we ask that we would hear from you this morning and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. Some of you will remember this. Uh, I do not. However, I've read enough about it that in the um, 1970s, a string of would-be prophets, including one Hal Lindsey and one uh, Edgar Wisenant, predicted a string of proofs, 88, in fact, of why Jesus would return in 1988. That's certainly didn't happen. In 1943, the chairman of IBM predicted that the world market for computers would never exceed five. Five. Worldwide. To be clear, I have two at this podium. Okay? Um, One of my favorite ones in the year 2000. In the Olympics, the best wrestler in the world surefire bet for Olympic gold was a monster of a man named Alexander Corellin. Corellin lost to a dude who looked like he spent more time watching professional wrestling than training for Olympic wrestling named Rulon Gardner, who, by the way, had never won a wrestling event up to that point. We love to be certain, don't we? And yet, at the same time, Things happen. Things happen that just, they, we couldn't have predicted them. They, they didn't happen the way we thought. Even the experts don't seem to get it right. And in many ways, this entire book of Ecclesiastes is an attempt to create a kind of certainty. How can I figure out how things run apart from the Creator God of the universe? And yet, it constantly comes up short. And in the words of the one who wrote it, meaningless. This morning, we're going to look at this text in two, two different ways. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you're new here, that, that happens every week. There's an outline in your bulletin, if that's helpful. We're going to look first at the elusiveness of certainty, and then we're going to look at, it, at the desire for it, okay? The elusiveness of certainty, and then the desire for it, okay? Let's begin by looking at certainty's elusiveness. Look down at chapter 8, the, the last two verses there, 16 and 17. The teacher, and, and if you're new here, uh, as we're going through Ecclesiastes, the guy who wrote this book calls himself the preacher or the teacher. Uh, other than that, we, we don't know his name. Some folks have thrown out possibilities, but it's never told to us, so we just kind of call him the teacher here. Uh, the teacher says that he applied his heart to know wisdom. Now, in the Old Testament, wisdom is a particular category. It's a, it's a certain uh, brand. It's a, it's a category for talking about how the world works. Okay? In most of the Old Testament, the, the, um, when you start the, the beginning of this search for wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord and now in, in the scriptures, the fear of the Lord doesn 't mean like fear is in terror, like shaking i don 't know what to do with that it means fear is in like reverence or honor sometimes even it means um, god 's self revelation the fear of the Lord being the, the Bible, in other words. Um, How the world works, in other words, has to begin with God as he's revealed in Scripture. Now, the problem is here, of course, that our writer, our teacher here in this book, is seeking to know the world, to understand wisdom, apart from God. Through rational inquiry. You know, kind of a a Cartesian, I think, therefore I am. I'm going to figure things out starting up here. Or from experiential knowledge, right? And so we need to be clear on how this investigation is going forward before we move on to the bulk of verse 17. Remember the entire premise of the book. Here's a dude uh, who wants to find something, anything, apart from a personal, ultimate God to hope in. In other words, to, to find meaning. to find And remember, when, when he says meaningless in this book, it doesn't mean purposeless. We, we think of meaningless, we think worthless. That's not what it means. It means that it can't, it can't hold our hopes. It's, a, it's, it's like a vapor. It's like um, a, a breath on a cold morning. It looks like it has substance, but it doesn't. That's, that's what he means by meaningless. And he wants something to be able to find, something apart from God to hold his hopes. And the way we've spoken about this is that his perspective throughout almost the entire book, and what I mean by almost is like, he changes that perspective at the end, the very end, but his perspective throughout the, almost the entire book is, is thoroughly secular. It's thoroughly secular. In other words, he's right where many of us are this morning. We're not sure about an ultimate personal God either. May he be here for multiple different reasons, but we look at the world entirely secularly, and... You may be surprised by this, uh, by the fact that such a, a secular outlook is going to be found in the Bible, but the Bible's not an insecure book. Right? God, God's not an insecure God. He, he doesn't mind exp- like you exploring alternatives to him because he knows that they can't hold their weight. You can try it. It's not going to work. So he, he has no problem with that. But that brings us to the failure of verse 17. Look there, he says this. I saw all the work of God, that man cannot. Uh, some of your translations say "find out." The word means comprehend. But it, the man cannot comprehend the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not comprehend it. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot comprehend it. Basically, he's saying this: I tried to figure out the way things are going to work. I tried to to use my 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 intellect. I tried to use experience to figure out how things are going to happen, but I can't. And no one can, in fact. Even if someone claims it, they are lying. What do you think about that? The idea that, sorry, like, you're never going to be able to have all the bases covered. You can't. There's no way for you to anticipate it. He's saying that he cannot seem to comprehend how things are supposed to be. Now, remember, like I said, his, his method is, like, rational, maybe even experiential. Uh, it's, it's certainly not spiritual or, or theological. He's, he's looking at the world, and he's trying to come up with a pattern A predictable outcome, you just can't find it. In this case, he's even granting the reality of God, but what he wants to do is he wants to figure out what he's doing on his own. Does that sound familiar? Some of us are there, right? Like, we may believe that God exists, but but we want to figure him out on our own. Like, I'm going to figure out what he does by watching, not necessarily by letting him reveal it. It, We're the type of people, perhaps, that, that think that we can actually understand a person just by watching them. Just to be clear, you can never understand a person unless they reveal themselves to you. You may be able to, to see certain things, but people are known not just by actions, but by motives. They're not just by, known by what their hands do, but what their heart feels. And, and you can never tell what the heart is feeling unless you actually ask. And so, uh, But that's what this guy wants to do. He wants certainty, but he can't seem to get it. He wants to know how things will play out, but he can't grasp it. He wants to have predicted the variables... But nothing seems regular, so he can't comprehend it. Not only this, but he's claiming that he's not the only one who can't comprehend it. He's claiming no one else can. Okay, Now, I'm not sure whether you, you find that arrogant or not, but over and over the teacher has presented himself in this book as like, he's pretty much the smartest dude that you could imagine. He, you know, he, He's smart, he's rich, um, he's powerful. He's pretty much got it all. He's tried it all. He's done it all. And he's saying you can't do it. But before we move on with this text, we need to make sure we're all clear on what he's talking about, right? I mean, some of us have thoughts on what it means to seek certainty, but let's be sure. Because first of all, you, know, you have like the, the humorous type of certainty, like Murphy's Law, right? The idea that whatever, whatever bad can happen will happen. Uh, that is a technique that we employ to limit disappointment. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. You can go back and listen to that one, okay? We're not going to move any further with that. But then there's what um, I like to call religious certainty, I do such and such, God does such and such, right? I, we call that the Coke machine God around here. I put in my quarter and press my button, I get my blessing, right? That, that's, that's the way things work. And if something bad is happening, it's because we didn't perform as we should. That's, that's a kind of religious certainty. Then there's the certainty of, attached to things like vocation, right? Like college degree equals well-paying job. How's that working, right? Some of you all in this room are like, <laughs> Talk to somebody this week, they're like, a uh, um, friend got a degree from, from a very nice school, and, um, and she's waiting tables, right? Um, and not by choice, but because that's what is available. College degree equals well-paying job. Good, good. And then, of course, in Christian circles is my favorite, right? That's the certainty of God's plan. You know, Christians in this room, you, know, you probably know what I'm talking about. This is one where you look at what's going on in your life. Um, and, and we just know that the reason this is happening is because God is trying to teach us X or trying to weed out from our hearts Y right? this, this thing over here now to some extent, certainty speaks to outcome right, I know this I, I know that this and such is, is going to play out it is based on observation but it's also based on a belief that we live in a cause and effect universe that if I do this I will always get this and that is why every time we have a tragedy, either in our lives or in this country, especially in this country, we look for a cause. It's like immediate. Some of you remember a few years ago, the Newtown tragedy, right? Dude goes into a uh, school and sh- shoots up the place. It was awful. And almost immediately, like it was almost like the parents hadn't even been contacted yet. And people are already starting to blame stuff. Why? Because we believe that if we can keep that from happening, like, if we can identify what caused that, it will never happen again, right? Most of us experience this most in terms of relationships, because you've been betrayed, right? Whether or not, you know, it may not have been yesterday, maybe it was middle school, but you've been betrayed, I've been betrayed, we know how that happens, and we want to guarantee that it will never happen again before we trust another person. What the teacher is telling us is that such things cannot exist. You cannot look rationalistically at the world and perfectly predict how things will play out. You cannot do that because the universe is not a complex machine. It is governed by a person, not cogs. But that brings us to our desire for certainty. Look down at verses 1 to 2 of chapter 9 for the drive. If anything comes out of those first few verses, what should be palpable to you is frustration. It's as if the teacher is going, I want this and I can't seem to get it. I can't seem to wrap my mind around it. I can't grasp what is actually going on. And all of this really comes down to two phrases here. One, that their deeds are in the hands of God. And the second one being, the same event happens. Did you see that? He says at the end of verse 1 in chapter 9, the righteous and the wise, their deeds are in the hand of God. And verse 2, it is the same for all, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. This unmasks for us, honestly, what certainty is really all about. It's all about control. It's all about control. Why is it that we want to be able to predict what's going to happen? Why do we want guarantees? Why do we want want to be able to say what God is doing in our lives in a given, given moment? It's because... We want control. We want to know what's going on because we know we can't actually have control. And the next best thing is to be able to say, but at least I know why such and such is happening. I know why such and such is happening because... And that is why verse 2 is so frustrating to us. What do you mean the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked? That isn't how it's supposed to work, Right? Because in our minds, we think, I can make things different. Like, I, I, I can make things change. I can, I can control the variables. I can keep myself safe. That's the root, isn't it? If I know what's going to happen, whether that's by declaring all the events that will happen on the roadmap to Armageddon, Even though the Lord Jesus said no one, including him on his earthly life, knew the day or the hour, Okay, or uh, it's believing that someone has proven that they will never lie to you again, we want certainty that we will be safe by knowing what what is coming. We want to be God. We want to be God. We want a world without risk without risk because we've anticipated it anticipated it or, or or wrapped it up in a bow okay look i'm no different but listen to me when i was 17 years old my father committed suicide it is 19 years ago now and i can tell you i have no idea why that event happened can i see some things that came about because of it because of it yes but it is arrogant in the extreme to think that I have some reason for that event summed up, I do not. I cannot get control of that tragedy, nor can I get control of other events like it, and neither can you. That leads us to verse three to see where this drive springs from. The teacher says this. He says, "Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. All right, now follow me, because this is a little confusing. Because some of you are like, what does that have to do with the whole rest of the passage? Um, it actually has everything to do with it if we place it all within the larger story the Bible tells. Because the Bible tells the story that the world as it is is not the world as it should be. and It's not the world as it will be. Okay? God created everything good. And humanity was created in the world to steward it, which means to, to rule um, according to the wishes of, a, of another, of a greater uh, ruler, right? We were we were to exercise God's reign over the creation and to be in a dependent relationship with Him. In other words, we were created to depend on God out of out of love. Um, he loves us, He provides for us, and flourishes us, and we lovingly trust Him. Okay, easy equation. The problem is is that we were eventually convinced of a lie. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. God is not for you. He is restricting your potential. He is seeking to withhold good things from you, uh, and that you can be equal with him. Does that sound familiar? Because that's the lie that most of us believe, right? God gives like a pattern for human flourishing in the scriptures. This is what it will mean for you to flourish. Like all he's doing is ruining my fun. He's just keeping me away from what's good. What I really want is the very things he's saying I can't have. And at root, the lie was about two things. Telling us that we could be equal with God, on the one hand, and telling us that we had to be equal with Him. Okay? That we could be equal with God. In other words, we could be God's ourselves. And that we had to be. Which means, in other words, He's out to get us. And if we're not equal with Him, we're in trouble. It was about us needing to exalt ourselves and to protect ourselves. And we believed that lie. In fact, we still do. And we turned away from God. We betrayed Him. We betrayed God, which is what the Bible calls sin. Okay? Not so much about rules as about a relationship. Jason said that a little earlier. We broke relationship with God and sought to be both equal with Him and to uh, be protected from Him and everyone else. <laughs> we thought that doing this would bring us freedom and fullness, but instead what it brought us was slavery and emptiness. Listen, you and I know, when you betray someone, guilt happens, right? You betray your spouse, you betray your parents, you betray your kids. Guilt happens. It happens. It's not a choice. It just happens. Uh, And you can't just make that not happen. We betrayed God and we became guilty. The Apostle Paul tells us in in Romans chapter 6 that the the wages of betraying God, in other words, like, um, what you earn for betraying Him uh, is is death or, or hell. It's not a little thing, okay? But we also, not only are we guilty, but we became stuck in that lie. Stuck in it. Like, if before we were living out of the truth that we were made for him, that he was, there. He was loving us and, and seeking to flourish us. Now we are completely um, out of, living out of a lie that we could be and must be like God, which is why this verse makes sense in this passage. Why do we obsess about certainty? Why do we obsess about control? Uh, because our hearts are now fundamentally turned away from God, which is a posture that the Bible calls evil or wicked, right? Hearts of men, the children of men are evil. They, they are Uh, Full of madness, craziness, he says. And this isn't just something for a few of us. The Bible tells us that all of us, all of us, right? If you were born in this room, you have this issue. Okay? Every one of us. That we are fundamentally stuck living out of this lie. Which means we are stuck betraying God over and over again. That is why we are so driven to certainty, because we believe that we have to protect ourselves. We have to. It's not an option. It has to happen. Because we believe we, we, we have to wrench control away from the God who is against us. We have broken relationship with the God we were made for and are acting out of that pos- position. But certainty can't hold our hopes. It can't hold our hopes. But for us to stop obsessively seeking it, we will have to see our reason for seeking it healed. In other words, if you seek certainty, if you're seeking control because your heart is broken, you can't just stop until your heart gets fixed. Like, why? Okay. Try not to be obsessed with certainty. Got it, Rick. Oops. Oops. Like, it's just not, you can't do it. The heart has to be fixed. And this is where our certain hope comes in. Look, the scriptures are, are, are clear that we are stuck in this position. The problem is not our behavior. It's not our behavior. The problem is the heart from which the behavior comes. Jesus said as much, right, when he said that out of the heart comes all kinds of bad stuff. He's not saying all that bad stuff makes your heart bad. He's saying all, out of the heart comes all that bad stuff. But then that's why he came in the first place. Because you see, when we turned away from God, God would have been completely justified to just end it there. To have made, to make us bear the weight of that betrayal by judging us right then and there. But he didn't. Instead, he made a promise. We talked about this in, in the, the engaged class. I, I, we did a little earlier that he made a promise that he would fix things. That he would fix what we broke. Because you see, if our issue is that our brokenness, our sin, is driving our betrayal of him then we need someone from outside of ourselves to heal, to fix us. We can't do it. And that is what God did in Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life we couldn't sinless. My kids, we, we, we do this thing every morning called like a catechism where it's like questions and answers and, and one of the things is, one of the answers about Jesus is no, he lived a sinless life. And all of my kids will say, no, he lived a sinless life. Like, yeah, emphasize that. I love that. But that's true. He lived a sinless life, a, a perfect life that we couldn't. But not just that. He died for our sin in our place and the rose against so that we, may, we might be made new. Look, we believe that God is not trustworthy. Some of you in this room believe that right now. You're listening to me and you're like, you're yeah, right. You don't know my life, right? You've seen all the crud that's happened in my life, all the stuff that I've been stuck with. Like, We believe that God isn't trustworthy, that he wasn't for us. But friends, in Jesus, he proved his love for us all the way to the cross where he died so that we might be forgiven. When we trust in Jesus, when we lay our hopes on Him, we can be made new and restored to the God that we were made for. Now, of course, for those of us who don't believe, right, and we're in this room, we, we may be thinking, but oh, Rick, how can I know? Right? How can I be certain? <laughs> how can I be certain what you're talking about is right? How can I be certain what you're talking about is true? listen, I can walk you through all the historical evidences for the life of Christ, for his resurrection, all that stuff. If you really like that, I'd be more than willing to do that. But sometimes, perhaps even most of the time, our desire for certainty in believing the promises of God or believing the claims of Jesus doesn't spring up because we don't have enough information. Or because we have one pressing question that must be answered. Most of the time, it springs up Because we don't want to believe. We know that believing means trusting in another. And we still think we can't do that. That we have to look out for number one. In other words, we're still believing the lie. A lot of times it's just that we don't want to believe. Here's the other thing. Some of us are thinking, so so Rick, you're saying that if I place my faith in Jesus, if I place my faith in Jesus, I can have certainty then. Maybe, uh, but probably not the way you're thinking. If you're thinking that you can trust in Jesus and he will somehow help you get control of the future, you're simply just using Jesus to get what you really want. Control and certainty. That's Coke machine God again. It's just using Jesus as your quarter, right? Jesus is my quarter. And, uh, instead of morality or whatever. Certainty, friends, speaks to an outcome, but faith speaks to a person. What I'm saying is that trusting in Jesus can free you from the need to have that kind of certainty in the first place. Okay, I'm not going to fo- sell you a false bill of sale, because some people, in the name of Christianity—I'd say in the name of Jesus—but I don't think Jesus has anything to do with this. Certainly, in the name of Christianity, uh, will try and tell you that if you come to Jesus, life will go well for you, and that everything will be peachy keen. That is a lie. You don't come to Jesus because you want to escape pain, or even because you ultimately want to escape judgment. You come to Jesus because the Spirit of God has freed you to see that you were made for God. That you've betrayed Him, but that He will forgive you in Christ. Here is the certainty that God gives us in the Gospel. Okay? Listen close. That we are made right with God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that no matter what happens, and Paul has a long string of these things life or death or angels or demons or present or future or any power that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Jesus. And that He will, He, not just might, not just may, not just if I'm good enough, but He will raise you up on the last day to everlasting joy in His presence that he, that he made you to find fullness in him and that he is enough for you that is the certainty that the gospel gives us not that pain can be avoided as a matter of fact the christian life it says look jesus says in this life you will suffer you can't live in a sinful world and not suffer we cannot live in a broken world and not experience pain it cannot happen If anyone is telling you that is possible, they are lying. They are using you. It cannot happen. God is saying that He is enough for you. Now let me say two more things about certainty before I close. First is about theological certainty. There are some things, Christian, listen really close to me. There are some things, some questions for which We will not have answers. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things are for the Lord our God, but the things revealed are for us and for our children forever. There are some things that God says, don't need to know it. May not ever. I know a lot of us are like holding out hope, like, I get to heaven. Jesus is going to tell me everything. Why do you think that? Maybe he won't. I don't know. Maybe he will. But what this means is that the answer to our desire to see how the world works ultimately is not trying to figure it out on our own. It is trusting in the Lord who reveals Himself. He reveals Himself in His Word. That is where the, the Scriptures. That is where He reveals Himself. You and I, all of us in this room, can get together. We can pool our ignorance as much as we want to try and figure out what God is like and what He's doing in the world. But this verse lays out, Two things secret things and things revealed. Not things I figured out, things revealed. Stop judging God, yourself, and others by how you think things should be. The one who created everything has laid out his word. You look here, we look here. But where that word stops, so do we. So do we. There are some questions that won't be answered, and frankly, there are some answers you will not like. You're just not going to like them. Sorry. That isn't to say that they aren't valid questions. It's just that God is asking for us to let him be God and to trust him. Frankly, friends, can I tell you, if God is not blowing your paradigm, if there is not some, if you think you have God wrapped up in a box, you're like, I got him here, this is the way he will act, always act, and will do, that somehow it's not kind of tied into this, you're not following God, you're just following a more powerful version of yourself. God must blow your paradigm. He is infinite. Too big for your box. Too big for your box. Okay? He is God, not you, not me. Okay. Lastly, though, the word certainty has become rather unpopular in hip Christian circles when it comes to understanding the Bible. Okay, uh, There are a lot of blogs out there you can read. I'd recommend you don't, honestly. Blogs are... Ugh. Anyway, there are a lot of blogs out there you can read... Uh, that that seem to have a problem with the word certainty, do not take what I am saying today as the notion that you can't really know anything for certain about the Bible or about God or that all ideas about God are equally valid. They are not. There are things that are revealed. Remember? There are secret things and the things that are revealed and those things are for us and for our children. That is to say, doubt is a reality, not a virtue. It is a reality, not a virtue. And just because someone has an idea, or even publishes an idea, or just blogs about an idea, that doesn't make it equally valid with what the church has believed from the Scriptures for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Look, our search for certainty apart from God is a search for control. And it is born out of the belief that we can and must be like God. But Jesus frees us from our obsession with certainty by restoring us to God. By letting us return to being dependent. Not on our ability to figure it all out. But on the God who loves us. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come, everyone in this room wrestles with this. I know we do. Those of us who don't think we do, we're probably just fooling ourselves. The reality is, we love to be certain. Whether it's from thinking about how a conflict is going to go with another person, where we run through the, the argument in our heads a million times. Well, if, if he says this, I'm going to say this. And if he says this, I'm going to say. Or whether it's just, what's going to happen if, if I take this job? Or what's going to happen if I buy this house? Or what's going to happen if I go to this school? How can I keep myself safe so that I'm not betrayed by my spouse anymore? Lord, we struggle. We want to be in control. We want to be certain. But you, O God, teach us not that pain is going to be absent from us, but that you are enough for us even in our pain. And so we ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace and the faith to cling to you in the midst of all of that and to seek our life from You and not from our certainty. Help us all, whether we are believing it for the first time or for the first time in the last five seconds, would You help us to believe again the Gospel? We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.
0: Amen. Listen, we know that sin builds its kingdom on the backs of slaves, does it not? And so... For those of us who've placed our faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ alone, we are no longer those slaves. And during this time, in the season, where we focus on self-examination, we read earlier the reading of the law. And so it's a natural question to ask. Since nobody can keep the law, what is its purpose? And so this morning, if you'd stand with me, please, we're going to confess
1: what we believe from Scripture about The purpose of the law.